0: Welcome back to the Paris Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Chris McGlory. Dr. Chris McGlory is the Assistant Professor at the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies at Queen's University in Canada and has done a lot of research in the area of omega-3 fatty acids or fish oils and athletes. So welcome to the podcast, Chris.
1: Thanks very much for having me and uh, thanks for the introduction. I've been looking forward to talking about the topic and and, and and having some good discussion.
0: Yeah. So can you start us off by giving us a little bit of an idea about your background and how you got into researching this particular molecule?
1: Yeah, for sure. It's um, kind of an interesting path. I, I started, I did an undergraduate degree in Liverpool John Moores University with James Morton, where we, we studied the effects of high molecular weight carbohydrates on exercise capacity and um, I had a, a real interest in in working in that field. James gave a re, you know excellent lectures when I was a student, and it got me really fascinated in the field of metabolism and, and sports science. And actually, when I was kind of doing my my master's degree um, with James, I started to get a bit of a fascination with protein metabolism and and muscle growth and you know supplements for muscle growth, particularly protein. And James basically said, you know, if you really want to learn that area of research, a good technique to acquire is that of, of metabolic traces, or you know, you know, using stable isotopes to track. Uh, muscle protein turnover responses to nutrition but you know at the time there was no real expertise there with that particular technique in Liverpool John Moores and so I ended up you know applying for a position with uh, Professor Kevin Tipton at University of Stirling and this was with Kevin and also Stuart Galloway. And, you know, I had to write a proposal mm-hmm. for my, my PhD application centered on, you know, uh, dose responses of protein and and such like. But when I when I got there, they they kind of said, you know, we, we like these ideas. And uh, Kevin had just completed a study with Ollie Wittard, his dose response study. So that area had kind of already been, you know, built on from, from other work. But uh, Kevin and, and Stuart proposed to me, you know, why are you interested in something slightly different like fatty acids and the interaction between omega-3 fatty acids and, and protein turnover and it? At the time i was a little bit kind of skeptical but one of the reasons that they were proposing mm-hmm. this is actually in sterling's the institute of aquaculture which is i think a european leading institute for you know the analysis of particularly fish tissues and you know in response to different feeds and at the time there was a paper that had mm-hmm. come up from Bettina mittendorfer's group showing that if you consume the omega-3 fatty acids or if you provide omega-3 fatty acids to older people it can enhance the protein synthetic response to protein ingestion so It kind of was a little bit in what my interest was of, you know, protein turnover and and protein ingestion, but it also had a new element that I was quite excited about, which was the omega-3s. And that's really where it started. And since then, you know, we published a couple of papers as a group with time course changes in muscle lipid profiles with omega-3 supplementation, Uh, you know, the effect of Mm -hmm. omega-3s on protein synthesis in response to exercise and protein feeding. And then I was lucky enough to go to McMaster to work with Professor Stuart Phillips and Stuart is an excellent mentor, and he, he kind of took me under his wing in 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 how to design and really execute you know complex human clinical trials, and that's what you know I learned mm-hmm. from Stuart, and he and he allowed me to bring in the omega three interest that I had, and we published um, a couple of papers there in collaboration with another group in Guelph. So, really, the kind of a long answer to your to your short question, but essentially it was I had a real interest in protein turnover, and I think uh, Stuart and Kevin really you know instilled or or kickstarted the interest and, and the blend of omega threes into, you know, exercise mm. and nutrition itself.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so can you tell us what we're talking about in terms of omega-3 fatty acids? Can you just give us a little bit of an idea of what they are, where they come from, and and what their primary role is?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, normally when people think, or, you know, the everyday person thinks of fats, it's got a lot of negative connotations. You think of saturated fats, and, you know, it's, Oftentimes, particularly in, in the in the media, portrayed as quite a, a negative thing. But you know, just like amino acids, mm. there's there's different types of, of fats and fatty acids and some fats are essential and that basically means if you were on a desert island and, and you didn't have them, then you would die. You know, your body absolutely needs essential mm. fatty acids. And the omega-3 fatty acids, particularly EPA and DHA, you know, they're they're conditionally essential fatty acids. And without them we would you know, not be able to kind of perform very critical biological processes in our body that are, that's important for health. And, you know, the reason that these omega-3 fatty acids are important is because they contain double carbon bonds at specific parts of their their, their carbon chain. And it actually has a, a profound effect on on the way in which they're metabolized and their actions in the body. So essentially omega-3s are, are a type of essential fatty acid. The main omega-3 fatty acids are Um, epa and dha and they can be incorporated into our muscle into our tissue membranes and an area that we focus on is is how epa and dha affect skeletal muscle membranes and skeletal muscle function and you can find these essential fatty acids epa and dha in oily fish certain nuts and seeds but the the predominant dietary sources is certainly fish for epa and dha
0: Mm -hmm. And are there recommended daily intakes of these fatty acids Uh, in terms of you know, most countries have recommendations on certain nutrients and how much you should take? Are these fatty acids part of those recommendations?
1: It's kind of yes and no. So I'll I'll kind of bring it back is so you can actually synthesize or create EPA and DHA from the ingestion of something called Mm -hmm. ALA. It's another it's another fatty acid. But the conversion rates are so low that we kind of essentially need to get these these fatty acids in our diet. Now, there's no, to my knowledge, um, at least in Canada and the US, an RDA for EPA or DHA is in place. There's, there's recommendations for ALA and that's 1.6 grams per kilogram of body mass for men and 1.1 for women. But there are general recommendations mm-hmm. for EPA and DHA intake and it's typically anywhere between, you know, one to two grams a day depending upon your health status. But I kind of, I would say a good, a good kind of benchmark or something to aim for is is between one to two grams of combined epa and dha a day
0: and and what does that translate into in terms of the amount of fish you'd have to have
1: yeah it, it again it's a it's a question it's a nuanced answer in terms of it depends what types of fish um, off the top of my head, I don't know exactly you know the, the EPA and DHA content of all different types of, of fish, but you know oily fish typically has higher amounts of EPA. So, say maybe you know one to two portions of oily fish a week will typically get the majority of your EPA and DHA intake, and then after that, it can be supplemented mm-hmm. with other foods. Um, so, and you can of course you know obtain yeah. it through supplements. But I think the key thing with Mm. supplements is they're often marketed as fish oil or omega-3 supplements, but they're packed with a lot of other things. So for anybody who's looking to, you know, if you don't like fish, a lot of people don't like eating fish. So if you want to use a supplement in in place of fish, it's important to look at the back of the label and to see what the content of the EPA and DHA is.
0: Mm. Okay, yeah, that's that's good advice. Because, yeah, I think it's important to realise you don't need to eat fish every day in order to achieve that intake and it does come from other foods. But if you don't particularly like fish, then you may need to look at a supplement if you want to get the, the amounts that you're recommending. So you said that they're incorporated into cell membranes. Now, obviously that's not just around the muscle. There's lots of different cells in the body. So are there? can you give us kind of a summary of, of the areas where we know that a higher intake of fish oils or fat, these omega-three fatty acids is beneficial to the to to humans.
1: Yeah, I think that the first kind of or the the main focus of the research in terms of omega-three fatty acids is actually in, in cardiovascular um, health and mitigating cardiovascular disease risk. And actually, there's a, something called the omega-three index, and the omega-three index is basically the amount of EPA plus DHA in a, in a red blood cell membrane as a function of the total amount of fatty acids in that membrane. And typically what it's suggested is, is, you know, anything above 8% is is going to afford the most protection. And then you have 4 to 8% is kind of a medium level protection and anything below 4%, there seems to be a higher risk of people, you know, suffering from cardiovascular diseases. So traditionally, and and more recently, well, traditionally it was, you know, a a lot of cross-sectional studies that identified that those who had a higher omega-3 index also had reduced risk of cvd but then there's been you know mm-hmm. more studies that have come out now larger rcts that are suggesting that actually you know can increasing the epa and dha composition of red blood cells or the omega-3 index and uh, can actually drive or sorry it can you know lead to protection against uh, cvd risk and there's also some other associations coming out with or cause mortality as well, and it appears at least from the most recent studies that actually you know the beneficial effects of omega threes in that context are primarily driven by, by EPA.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and in athletes, your particular area of interest obviously is in the protein and skeletal muscle, which is yeah. you know, the muscle that drives our body. What other areas are there? That have been researched in athletes where omega-3 fatty acids may be beneficial?
1: Yeah, there's it's kind of a, f- a few areas. There's a really good Australian group that have looked at how you know consuming DHA in particular can reduce the oxygen cost of exercise and you know how that would translate. There was no real effect on performance, to my knowledge at least, but you know, in that context, it may be beneficial. But I think for for one area I'm kind of interested in, well, there's two main ones. The primary one is injury. In that, you know, can we, yep. can we protect against the loss of muscle mass and strength for athletes who are going mm-hmm. through a period of injury, or they may have a cast or a brace. And then the other one is to see how, or if an intake of omega-3 fatty acids and changes in the lipid composition of the membrane can somehow potentiate the response of muscle protein synthesis to like smaller doses of amino acids, because we've done a study where we actually didn't see an effect of consuming protein. Uh, sorry, we didn't see an effect of Mm omega-3 fatty acid intake on the protein synthetic response to oral protein ingestion, which was kind of um inconsistent with a previous study that had infused amino acids, essential amino acids. Um but what we thought had happened is that you know we may have given like you know we gave a bit of a sledgehammer dose of protein. I think it was a 30 gram dose of protein and that's pretty much, you know, mm-hmm. going to maximally saturate rates of protein synthesis. And one area I'm interested in is, is if we were to give smaller doses of protein, would we be able to enhance that response? And I think that will be important in situations in which people don't want to be consuming large amounts of protein throughout the day. Um, and there's the the two main yeah. interests from, from an athletic perspective that I'm particularly interested in.
0: Yeah, and I guess it, that may also relate to, so if you look at the para population, you have some individuals who have relatively or proportionately lower energy requirements than, I guess, many other athletes do. For example, if they're, they have a spinal cord injury, their energy requirements are reduced because they have substantial muscle atrophy. So in that context, sometimes getting the, the doses of protein that you may recommend is is sometimes difficult when you're trying to manage all of the other requirements within that energy budget. So would that be an instance where perhaps because they may be at the lower end of protein recommendations that you're looking at having sufficient omega-3 fatty acids to support that muscle, you know, muscle protein turnover or the the uptake of that protein.
1: Yeah, that's a great question and you know up, to be upfront and honest there's no solid rcts that would would kind of close the door on this one way or another but i do think that that would be an interesting area to, to to look at in terms of if you're trying to manage people's energy requirements in terms of you know reducing the amount that they need to consume especially if it's a sudden change then you know maybe looking at things that would enhance the anabolic effect of protein or low doses of protein would be actually quite mm-hmm. beneficial I wouldn't be too sure in a power population, but it's something that I I I would say it has a fair bit of legitimacy in terms of a hypothesis and it's well supported. And like you said, it, it's if we can maintain muscle mass as and, and more importantly, or just as importantly muscle strength in certain athletes undergoing, you know, periods of say reduced energy intake, I think that would be quite
0: important. Mm. And so what what is your research kind of predominantly Specifically looked at, and and what has it shown us?
1: Yeah, so that kind of the first pieces that we we put together, um, and this was with you know Kevin Tipton, and Stu Galloway and, and others in, in Sterling, where we we'd seen this the evidence that omega three supplementation could alter you know muscle health. And this is from other groups. But one interesting question we had is, well, how long does it take from when you start to consume these omega-3 fatty acids before you see the change in the muscle? And sometimes with nutrition, particularly with carbohydrate and and protein ingestion, you see the effects quite early, acute effects within minutes to hours. Say in the case of protein synthesis, you see a rapid increase within hours. Now, when it comes to alterations of the EPA and DHA profile of muscle, particularly that phospholipid membrane, this can take weeks. So from when you start to consume these omega-3 fatty acids you know what we showed. we did a time course study and this was in young healthy men where we found it took about two weeks before we we saw even a marginal change in the epa and dha profile of the muscle and then it wasn't substantially altered until around four weeks after supplementation so you know it's not a case of you start taking EPA and DHA in your diet on a Monday and then by Tuesday you, you're expecting to see the beneficial effects. I don't think it works like that. Mm. It, it takes time to alter the yeah. lipid environment of the muscle and to be incorporated in. So that was kind of the first area and that kind of, that study set like the groundwork for a lot of the intervention strategies that we've kind of subsequently used in terms of, you know, what we, we need to make sure that we have a minimum of a four week lead in before we start to begin our measurements mm-hmm. because the EPA and DHA simply will not be in the muscle by that time frame.
0: Right. Okay. And so then what was the follow on research to that?
1: Yeah. So I think that there was kind of two main projects that we, we followed up with. The first one was to look at the effect of omega-3 or EPA and DHA intake on the protein synthetic response to protein ingestion. And when protein ingestion is combined with resistance exercise, and mm-hmm. you no, know, we didn't see a statistical effect. And there's a number of reasons there. One, one thing we one kind of hypothesis we had is that like i said we we'd already maxed out the capacity of the muscle to build protein so to build new muscle protein so Mm. there was just no opportunity or window for the omega-3s to have an effect we you know we gave a a sledgehammer dose of protein in 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 this population Mm. and we've seen before that 20 grams is is sufficient to maximally saturate the response. so you know we gave you know hindsight's great uh, we wish we were looking back we wish we gave a little bit less protein but <laughs> we didn't see an effect because of that and then you know yep. it, we didn't have our pre-post we didn't have pre-measures of protein synthesis which meant that you know our study had a, an entirely between groups design which meant from a statistical power point of view there's potential we could have been underpowered but you know we're looking to follow yeah. that study up um yep. in, in in the near future to see if we can kind of capitalize on what we learned from that and then the next one yeah. was one that I'm actually quite proud of is, is a tissue study where we cast immobilized young women one of their legs for two weeks and then got them to come back to two weeks of recovery, just passive recovery doing what they would normally. And we found that in the group that consumed omega-3 fatty acids that appeared to be a protective effect towards skeletal muscle. But again, that was, you know, I would I would class that more of a proof of concept study that has kind of set the groundwork mm-hmm. to start studying uh, studying this this area a little bit more, but specifically in the context of muscle atrophy, is where I I, I think there seems to be a growing evidence base for the the effectiveness of omega three fatty acids.
0: Mm, so, from an athlete's perspective, if they had an injury, for example, that's a time when often there's a bit of muscle atrophy that may occur, depending on the the extent of that injury. So, for example, if someone's out of training for a few weeks, then theoretically, this is where the, the omega-3 fatty acids can be potentially beneficial to reduce the amount of muscle loss and more particularly perhaps the strength loss over that time. But then the key thing is that they need to have been consuming enough omega-3 fatty acids leading into that and often you don't you can't really predict when you're going to be injured, can you? <laughs>
1: No, uh, <laughs> and that's the common point I get whenever I say, you know, this is, you know, I, like I said, I, I would never go out there and, and shout from the rooftops. Everyone just start taking omega 3 fire acids if you're injured. There's a lot more research to be done. It is a promising area, but that's the one I always get as well. Okay, but I don't predict when I am going to be injured or someone's going to, you know, like knock me over. But I what I will say is sometimes there's surgeries that are scheduled. So, you know, you have an elective surgery and many mm. people who do have those elective surgeries due to sports injury know four months out when you're gonna get that surgery. So I think in that particular context for yep. athletes, increasing the omega-three fatty acid content may be beneficial. But then you will you sometimes get pushback from the surgeons where they ask you not to consume those supplements because they're concerned about the excessive bleeding risk. But there's now multiple RCTs and meta-analyses, so uh, multiple meta-analyses now showing that there's no real f- major effect of, of these omega-3s on, on bleeding in, in, in surgical cases. So hopefully we can we can start to push back on that a little bit. But I think in the context of, mm. of elective surgeries, this is where I think omega-3s may well actually be
0: beneficial. And so what sort of dose are you looking at there relative to, you said the, the recommended intake you think is somewhere between one to two grams of, DHA and EPA a day, what sort of doses of supplementation are we looking
1: at? Yeah, so again, this is, so the studies that we can only, we can only go off the studies that we've done and the doses that we used in those studies. And we use typically around five four to five grams of EPA and DHA a day. And, you know, and that's for four weeks leading into it. And, and i got to say, you know, we've we've got studies ongoing now and I'm looking at the size of the pills here and they're not too bad, but, you know, it, it's kind of a bit annoying mm-hmm. having to consume Four to five of these pills a day so in terms mm. of the dosages yeah it's a high dose it's a five gram dose but you know there, there may be potential that you can actually you know maybe have a high dose like a prime dose of a high dose quite early and then top it off with lower doses mm. just to maintain the epa and dha profile i know stuart galloway and his phd student are looking at that um particular question right now and that will be interesting to see because yeah. i i do agree that You know, but having said all of that, there is also, you can get very pure forms of EPA and DHA. So it's all about the purity of the, of the supplement because you're not going to get, you know, whenever you take, especially off the shelf supplements, it's EPA, DHA and a few other things. So, you know, when people say, oh, it's five grams per day of fish oil, it's like, well, actually, you know, it's, it's five grams per day of EPA and DHA. So you have to be careful, Uh you know, what the product is that you're using and whether it's pure EPA and DHA. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and there's also a li- been a little bit of research in terms of the role that this may play in the brain, for example, and potentially even with management of concussion sim- symptoms. Have you read any of that research? Are you familiar with that area? Uh,
1: if I'm honest, not really. It's not it's not my area of research, and I'm by no means an expert in that. But my my limited understanding is that a lot of this uh, research showing some kind of protective effects, you know, against the the impacts of concussions or traumatic brain injury has been done in preclinical rodent models uh, and they seem to be promising it's just Mm. I think it's quite difficult to to experimentally address these questions in humans and to my knowledge I'm not (laughs) aware. we don't really really want to go
0: deliberately yeah you don't (laughs) really want to go and deliberately concuss someone to be able to research it can you (laughs)
1: No, absolutely. You know, and I think when I was at Sterling, there was somebody looking to team up with the local boxing gym to, to try to study this a little bit uh, with omega-3s. I'm not too sure if that went anywhere, but I, I'm going to say is it, it it's obviously a very complex uh, phenotype, isn't mm. it? So I think, not to my knowledge, I'm not aware. Like I said, I'm no expert, but it does seem that in the preclinical rodent or animal studies, there is some positive data, but I think it's going to be a few years yet before we start to see that emerge into the, into the human world.
0: Mm. I guess... That doesn't kind of undermine though the fact that having an adequate dose or an adequate intake on a day-to-day basis of of omega-three fatty acids has a lot of other potentially beneficial effects on the body. You know, the cardiovascular disease potentially yeah. like I guess let's look at the flip side of that. If you don't have a high intake of omega-3 fatty acids, is that something that you'll noticeably see effects on the body if you have a, a more consistent dose and a consistent intake from week to week.
1: Yeah, I think so. One one of the the, the uh, in addition to the the cardiovascular disease risk, a lot of the times when people hear officials or omega-3 fatty acids, it's, it's their anti-inflammatory properties. And a lot of that is because they kind of mm-hmm. displace some of the pro-inflammatory N6 fatty acids. And I think when we talk about, you know, omega-3s we're starting to learn a little bit more about their roles because the majority of research has very much been in cardiovascular function the anti-inflammatory properties of of having a relatively you know decent level of omega-3 intake but now we're you know we're looking at skeletal muscle you've just mentioned you know traumatic brain injury and i gotta say I, it seems to me at least that people who have a low omega-3 status and i think a good way to look at somebody's omega-3 status is to use the omega-3 index it's it, i'm very careful with the omega-3 index cuz it can be it, it, it's a validated index in the context of cardiovascular disease what what that index means in terms of skeletal muscle health or any other metric of health I'm I'm not too sure and I don't think you can kind of relate them but essentially if you can use the omega-3 index as kind of um a readout of somebody's omega-3 status and I would you know I'd be confident to su- suggest that people who have a very low omega-3 index are more likely to benefit from increasing their EPA and DHA intake across a wide spectrum of, mm. of health outcomes, specifically in you know, mm. modulation of inflammatory markers.
0: Yeah, okay, so bottom line, we should try and achieve that amount, in that one to two grams a day in their diet on on an average of a, of a week, ideally through omega-3 rich foods, including fish, oily fish, but you also said there's other sources. So can we give some examples of some of the other sources of omega-3 fatty acids in our diet?
1: Yeah, some nuts and seeds will have EPA and DHA. I think the marine-based foods sources would be good. So, you know, you can find them in, you know, there's algae as well, but that's where the fish get them from to consume the algae, but, you know, mussels, other types of seafood. So essentially a lot of A lot of Mm -hmm. seafood will have high amounts of EPA and DHA, but in terms of kind of terrestrial foods, you do see them in some, you know, nuts and and seeds. I think when I try to, I'm always a food first person when it comes to, you know, nutrition, and I'm not a nutritionist or or a registered dietitian, but I just think about, you know, when suggesting to people or providing recommendations is a food first approach. And one reason that I do like the fish idea is because it also has high quality proteins. So in terms of the quality Mm -hmm. of the food, in that context is you're getting high quality omega-3s and you're getting high quality proteins as well. But that's not to say that, you know, if you don't consume fish, you can't obtain your omega 3 fatty acid from other sources. I think it's just about being a little bit more judicious on the types of foods that you eat, but you can certainly mm. get them from some, you know, seeds and, and nuts, but mainly it's marine-based sources.
0: Uh-huh. okay. And if, let's just sort of try and sum that up. What would your recommendations be to athletes and you know to coaches and other practitioners if so someone said to you okay Chris so what do you think I should do obviously a food first approach where possible but for someone who was struggling to get that amount in would you actually recommend a dose of say a gram a day from a, a supplemental Source,
1: yeah, certainly. I think um, a supplemental source would be an ideal way to go, but um, again, this is one of those things with supplements. Uh, and my older uh, mentor, Graham Close, will he's he, he works in uh, in the Portjo Moors in England, will be a nutritionist, and, and we'll always go on about you know, you've got to get the supplements that are being tested and accredited. You know, it's very dangerous, mm-hmm. I think, for athletes to start you know, taking supplements without getting them checked and speaking to the relevant qualified person to make sure that what they're taking is actually okay and it's not going to turn up a, a positive result but i think you know to kind of complement food intake if you're not really into consuming fish or it's not something that you like to do and we don't want to start pe- putting people off food you know like i i have to eat this because it has omega-3s in but it tastes horrible there are certainly other ways and and, and supplementation mm. is definitely one of them you can go down that route and and certainly get your intake in or at least kind of the you know like supplement your 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 food intake with with in essence, that's what it is—is is a supplement to your food intake. So you could certainly use one of those, mm. but again, it's just being careful what type of supplements you take. And it's interesting if, if for anyone who's listening the next time you go, you know, down, you know, to the the grocery store, or the supermarket, have a look at the back of what is promoted as omega threes or fish oil supplements, and you'll see a drastic mm. range of EPA and DHA content in those products. And generally, the ones with the higher EPA and DHA content tend to be a little bit more pricey.
0: Mm. Yep, but you get more bang for your buck, don't you? Yep,
1: you certainly do, yep.
0: <laughs> and, you know, there's also individuals who have allergies to fish and would you say that on the whole uh, an omega-3 fatty acid is is still relatively safe for them to consume if they've got a fish allergy or a seafood allergy?
1: Yeah, I'm a little bit reticent to comment too much on that because I, I wouldn't know, if I'm honest. Essentially what I do is just, you know, get the the supplement and give it to healthy people. I think in our studies we exclude, well we definitely exclude people who do have fish allergies and I really wouldn't know, maybe it's probably best to speak to um, a dietitian. But I will say that we did uh, publish a paper with um, Keelan Murphy and she's now in, in Melbourne A uh, review on this. And, and she uh, Keelan created a table where she kind of listed the, the contributions of EPA and DHA and protein and energy to a, a load of different food sources so, and it's in table one in that paper so if anyone's really interested in, in seeing like where you can get uh, EPA and DHA from that, that's a good resource there and, and it gives you it in kind of household measures as well so you can kind of like have a good idea on what it what a typical amount is you know like a small fillet or an anchovy or like a drained can uh, of, of particular types of yep. uh, food sources or fish that will help, be helpful.
0: Perfect. Great. What was the first author's name for that?
1: Uh, Keelan. Actually, she's Irish. So her name is uh, it's it's Murphy and McGlory in sports medicine is the best way to put it. And and the title of the paper: Murphy and McGlory
0: in sports medicine.
1: Yeah, yeah. Fish oil for healthy aging Mm. potential application to masters athletes. So that paper was uh, Keelan with that paper primarily focusing on um, on masters athletes. But there's some good information there in terms of sources of of foods that you can look at and the relative amounts of EPA and DHA in those foods.
0: Yeah, perfect. But as you say, if you if athletes and coaches can speak to their sports dietitian, they can get some individualised advice as to how they can adjust their diet to make sure that they're hitting those targets. Sure. And then I guess if, if you've got an athlete who is going in for surgery and they know that, then recommending a higher dose leading into that surgery just to protect the muscle as much as possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I certainly would – recommend talking to the physician or the surgeon and letting them know you're going to do this and see what they think but i think uh, one of the first things mm-hmm. is do no harm and i'm and, and i'm not aware of much evidence of just increasing your omega-3 intake from good clean sorry omega-3 intake from good clean sources leading up to surgery may do that much damage it's also oh, that much harm so um if anything it looks like it may have more protective effect especially if you are consuming adequate protein as well so i think uh, making sure that you go into those surgeries in the best physical condition you can do is going to help when you come out with them and and it seems to me at least that um, an increase in omega-3 intake for those particularly who have lower omega-3 intakes in the first place could be part of that that kind of strategy
0: Mm. yep awesome wow chris yeah there's it's still i guess you know every research project that you do uh, probably throws out more questions than it answers so (laughs) that's the nature of research isn't it
1: yeah, well, I think when you look back through the, especially sports nutrition, I mean, you talked before I read your papers when I was uh, studying in, in my undergrad and, you know, there's so much out there on like, you know, carbohydrates and rightly so because, you know, the primary fuel for high-intensity exercise. So there's a lot out there It's going to have a beneficial effect on protein and you look back in the years through, you know, Mike granny's work and, and Bob Wolfson and Kevin's mm-hmm. and, and Dr. Phillips and, and others and there's, you know, there's such a wealth of research out there. But I think one of the interesting things I find about the Omega-3s and the essential fatty acids per se is that I think, in, specifically in, in terms of skeletal muscle, the, the, they're certainly comparably understudied, and we're at a point in time now where we're actually starting to see some potential benefits of, of increasing the intakes of these fatty acids on skeletal muscle. So, not to say that it's going to be comparable to you know the beneficial effects we see with you know increased essential amino acids when it comes to protein synthesis or carbohydrate for exercise performance, but I still think we've got a lot to learn and a lot to understand about the role Mm. of these omega-3 fatty acids in in in, particularly in muscle and in in health and i and i find myself changing my mind quite a lot on on some of the data out there so um and and i I draw upon the cardiovascular research they they do those big rcts you know hundreds of people and i'm always looking through the papers for the secondary outcomes did you know they've got the the composite risk Mm. score for cvd and i'm like "Did, did any of you do a dexa for measurement of muscle there's like you know well, um, to date, I haven't seen much data there in, in any of those studies related to muscle. But again, like I said, it's, it's a really interesting area of research for me particularly. and I think we're at a good
0: time with it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, on that note, we'd better let you get back to do some some more research and some more thinking in that area. But before we go, you have one last question to answer, and that's what's your favorite food?
1: Steak. <laughs> I gotta say steak or pizza, (laughs) but but it's not fish. I'll I'll have have fish now and again, but uh, I used to like mussels. I went off mussels and then um, I'll have salmon. But I'll be honest, I take a fish oil supplement Mm -hmm. because I just don't eat enough fish. If I go to a restaurant and I see fish or steak, I'm taking steak every time. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, at least you're honest about it <laughs> uh, but yeah I love it when someone practices what they preach and at least make sure that you're getting sufficient omega-3 fatty acids in anyway okay well thank you so much for your time Chris and for your expertise and we certainly look forward to seeing some more in this space I might have to come back to you in another year or so and pick your brain again about what we know more about
1: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, thanks for having me on. It's always nice to talk these things through. There's
0: obviously a lot more we need to find out about omega-3 fatty acids and their role with athletes, but there is definitely emerging evidence of their benefits in health and well-being and potentially with muscle and also the brain with athletes. So at the bottom line, at least getting the one to two grams per day of the DHA and EPA, preferably through foods, is a good target for any athlete i hope you've enjoyed this podcast if you have any feedback please leave it on our website and feel free to share it with your social media just a heads up the podcast will be moving to every second week for the next few months and i hope you'll join us next time when we talk to dr adam Kinforty about bone and bone health